Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. It's the end of May, and summer is starting to show its face at last. Although in this month we've still seen some wild and windy nights, fierce bouts of freezing hail and gloomy afternoons. I'm walking along the shore at Splash Point on the Seaford coast in East Sussex. The lighthouses of Beachy Head, Belltoot and Newhaven are close by and so is the derelict village of Tide Mills. I can hear the crash of the waves and the rattle of the shingle shifting beneath my feet. I love walking by the sea. And given half an excuse, I will be swimming in it. There's something about looking out to the horizon where it's only sea meeting sky. It's easy to see why people in earlier times believed it was possible to sail over the edge of the world into an unknown place. That's unknown. The idea of the beyond, a place of infinite possibility, is a wonderful starting point for stories. When I was a child, I used to come for walks with my late grandfather along this very stretch of beach. He was a wonderful man with an extraordinary sense of playfulness and an innate storyteller. He used to tell me tales about the sun road, the path created by the reflection of the sun's light on the water, and we would spend time together wondering where it would go and what we might find at the other end of it. It's probably one of the reasons the seas inspired me so much. But it's far from being just me, of course. It's captured the imagination of storytellers, of humanity, since the beginning of time. From merfolk to monsters, ships and storms, there are so many tales and possibilities for tales floating in the ever-changing colours of the waves. Our story today is a tale of the sea and its strange bounty, and how things which are taken from it should always be returned. So hoist your sails and untie just one of your three magic knots to unleash a friendly wind. Then gather close around the fire and listen in. Welcome to the Three Ravens Podcast. There were three ravens sat on a tree. Down a down, hey down a down. Hello and welcome to episode 13 of the Three Ravens podcast. I'm Eleanor Conlon and I'm peering into the salty shallows for glassy green bottles with treasure maps curled inside. <laughs> and I'm joined at the place where X marks the spot by my co-host Martin Vaux. Shall I start digging? Absolutely. <laughs> I want some of that treasure. <laughs> now, it's a very special episode for us today because it marks the end of our first season of Three Ravens. Episode 13. Unlucky for some. But not for us. No, 
not for us. <laughs> I can't believe how quickly it's flown by, actually. Yeah. We've wandered through 13 historic counties of England, exploring all sorts of local customs, intriguing legends and lesser-known saints' days. And I have learned so much. Me too. <laughs> but most of all, we couldn't have got this far without the support of our incredible Three Ravens community. Yeah. So thank you all for your many kindnesses. Absolutely. And speaking of kindnesses, this week we need to say a special thank you to Nishka, who very kindly wrote us a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you, Nishka. They write, love this. I'm from America, but have loved English history since I was a kid. Also folklore from all over the world. I'm so happy I was able to find another podcast with my favourite subjects and even better, delivered by wonderful, talented hosts. Never stop having episodes. <laughs> I might have to go to Patreon to see your take on the Pendle Witch stories. Oh, that's so nice. If you, like Nishka, are tempted to join our Patreon, then do consider supporting us for just $3 a month and you get exclusive episodes all our stories as text versions and our Three Ravens newsletter full of folk customs for the month, a monthly tarot spread and a magic spell and loads of other esoteric goodies. Yep, yep. I'm currently working on the June edition of the newsletter at the moment and that will be published on June 1st. Thank you also to everyone who's joining us on social media via facebook.com forward slash Three Ravens podcast, Instagram at Three Ravens podcast and Twitter at Three Ravens pod. Yes, special mentions have to go to super sharers, likers and comments for this week teasel bast raven goddess the myth and monsters podcast dorothy justin tiki bongos magnus allison christopher and zuna We've also had some lovely emails and messages this week, including from Lorna and from Bob, who emailed us to correct our pronunciation of oh, some yeah. place names. We're really sorry about this. Sometimes we just read the place names and we've never heard somebody who's actually from the yeah, area pronounce true. them. So, Martin, would you like to yes. clarify? Uh, apologies. Apparently, in the Shropshire episode, it's pronounced clun, not clune, and reekin, not Reckon. I really regret that we got that wrong yeah. because we missed a valuable opportunity for terrible smelling giant jokes. I know, right? The reeking <laughs> giants. <laughs> Next time. <laughs> also, we have now reached the end of our three Ravens card design contest. Yeah. Thank you so much to everyone who's entered. We've been overwhelmed by how lovely all of your entries are. We'll be choosing our favourite three entries, although it's going to be very difficult in the next <laughs> few days and contacting the winners before we announce the results on social media and hopefully sharing those beautiful artworks with all of you. Yes, and then people can buy the cards through the website. Even better. I know, right? But also, just because the competition's closed, it doesn't mean we don't want to hear from you during the gap between series. We'll be back in July, but in the meantime, please do still get in touch with your thoughts and your feedback and any retellings you've done of folk tales, which we'd love to feature in one of our upcoming listener episodes. Email us at threeravenspodcast at gmail.com. So today is the 29th of May, which in folklore circles is known as Oak Apple Day. But oaks don't make apples, Eleanor. I are confused. They don't make apples, but the day commemorates Charles II's escape from the parliamentarian forces uh -huh. after hiding in a hollow oak tree in the grounds of Boscobel Hall in Staffordshire. Aha, uh -huh. so the king is an apple? I assume he is some sort of royal apple nestled within the tree. <laughs> okay. I don't know why it's called, uh, why the apple's involved as well. But I, I do know that the 29th of May is the anniversary of the day Charles II claimed the throne in 1660. Oh, okay. And it was traditional to wear a sprig of oak in your hat or on your clothes on this day to symbolise loyalty to the king. And not wearing one yeah. could result in attacks and Ooh. pranks by Ooh. local children, which meant... The day was sometimes referred to as a pinch bum day. <laughs> you can probably guess why. Is it because people's bums got pinched? I'm tempted to say no. There's actually a really <laughs> beautiful religious meaning, but no, that's exactly why. <laughs> so a day for celebrating Charles II and sexual harassment. You got it. <laughs> <laughs> well, be sure to wear your oak sprigs, everyone. It's better to be safe than sorry. <laughs> yes. So let's stop the county criers from pinching bottoms <laughs> long enough to toll out the bells of Suffolk. Oh,
Suffolk is located in East Anglia. It's bordered by Norfolk to the north, Cambridgeshire to the west, Essex to the south and the North Sea to the east. The county town is Ipswich, one of England's oldest towns. There are records of continuous settlement there since Saxon times. And the county motto is Guide Our Endeavour. Oh, that's quite nice. Guide Our Endeavour. Hmm. Yes, it's nice, isn't it? Yeah. Now, Suffolk and its stories are a continued source of inspiration to me. I've written a number of plays set in the world of its legends and I never get tired of exploring the county. I was actually born there in Bury St Edmunds, so I guess it's in my bones. (laughs) Martin, what do you know about Suffolk? Well, I knew very, very little until you started to take me to Suffolk initially on holiday and then to be part of Rust and Stardust Productions over the years. The thing that strikes me about visiting Suffolk is, firstly, the kind of flatness of it. It's big sky country. It's very, very beautiful for these kind of long, 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 long views. And then I think the other thing that really intrigues me is when you visit a lot of the towns, particularly coastal towns, there's obviously been a lot of change in the coast around those areas, but huge sums of money used to come in there in sort of the medieval era. And then... Because the coast changed and Mm -hmm. various different ports and bays silted up, the money stopped. And so you've got all these kind of amazing, beautiful grand churches and some stunning old buildings and houses. And yet they're often in quite sleepy villages and towns. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it, to think how much it's changed Mm -hmm. um, in terms of industry and trade. Definitely. Over the centuries. Well, it was, as you say, very important. In Saxon times, it was part of the Kingdom of East Anglia, which was one of the main powers in the Heptarchy. Yeah. Uh, That also comprised Norfolk and possibly part of the Fens too. So it stretched quite a long way. Yeah, it's quite big. It was probably at its most powerful under Radwald in the 7th century. And Radwald is likely the person buried at Sutton Hoo. We went to Sutton Hoo not that long ago and had a look at the new exhibition hall that they've opened up there. Pretty amazing place. If you don't know the Sutton Hoo hoard, the treasure that was found there, I'll be putting some photos up on the blog, but I mean, they are true treasures. One of the most important Saxon archaeological finds in England. They found an incredible ship burial and a vast hoard of interesting objects, including the famous helmet supposedly worn by Radwald yeah. and a pattern welded blade. I love the belt probably most of oh, all. It's so stunning. In that belt you've got all of these incredibly intricate like minute and tiny engravings of dragons and other creatures that you almost need translation. You need like an expert to mm. show you which bits are which. Once you know to look f- for them then you go, oh, my God, how has anyone managed to do this? I mean, it, it seems like it must have been done under microscope, but that's just kind of the degree of craft that was around in what people have for a long time called the Dark Ages. Yeah, it completely reimagines what we might think when we think the Dark Ages, yeah. just looking at that single piece. It does. It's it does. incredible. It really does, yeah. Well, East Anglia wasn't actually incorporated into the main kingdom of England until 927 AD. So it was its own thing for for quite a long time. Until the kingdoms unified under Athelstan of Wessex, who we talked about before. And prior to that, our old friend Pender of Mercia and his descendants had moved in on East Anglia in a big way because it was important territory. So he was keen to get his paws on that. Yeah, lots of money, I'm imagining, coming over from Scandinavia as well as Europe, basically, by sea trade. In the Middle Ages, too, there was a lot of East Anglian action, especially from Roger Bygod, who's a Norman knight and a friend of William I, but not a friend of William II. Oh, why not? Did (laughs) William II smell bad? Well, (laughs) we know all about William II, too, don't we? Um, But uh, Roger Bygod joined the rebellion against William II in the 11th century, for which he had his lands removed and given back a few times. It's um, fair to say it was an on-again, off-again relationship. (laughs) Um, But he's famous for founding Framlingham Castle. Oh, okay, we went there. Amazing place. It's a very beautiful castle. And also Thetford Priory in Norfolk, another fantastic place to visit. And he's still honoured today by a wonderful cheese, which is named after him. (laughs) Baron Bygod cheese is very delicious if you've not tried it. So it wasn't William II who had a bit of an aroma. It may have been... Old Richard Bygod. Well, after he'd eaten that much cheese, perhaps. Old Feety Roger. (laughs) (laughs) 
his uh, later descendants, uh, future bygods uh, and cheese eaters, yep. continue to have a slightly fraught relationship with the reigning monarch because Hugh Bygod was a dissenting baron in the anarchy. Uh, Roger Bygod, the grandson, was a key player in the first baron's war against John I. Oh, so they're a bit uppity. Little bit uppity. Uppity by gods. Uppity by gods. <laughs> Delicious cheese, though. <laughs> Framingham Castle, incidentally, has been the scene of a lot of fascinating history. Its ownership went backwards and forwards in the Wars of the Roses. And one of my favourite underrated historical <laughs> figures, Mary I, gathered her armies there before seizing power in 1553 yeah. and marching on London. Super cool. I'd really recommend a trip to Framlingham Castle if you happen to be in Suffolk. It's great. You can walk all around the battlements yeah. and there's a fantastic view all around. It's incredible. Mm-hmm. So you talked about the, the Suffolk coast earlier. Yes. And because it is la- there's a huge stretch of coast, it was a key player, the county, in the Anglo-Dutch Wars. Now, I don't know that much about the Anglo-Dutch Wars, really. Well, they went on for an extremely long time. Right. Were quite convoluted. Various different monarchs from on both sides. And they were primarily sort of religious wars, right? I think, yes, a mixture of religion, culture, trade. Yeah, okay territory uh, or sea territory i suppose um and you can see um, all along the coast um, remains of forts which were important defense sites during those wars so uh, there's one south world langard fort near felixstowe and lowestoft they were all the sites of naval battles many of which have been immortalized (laughs) in paintings which martin loves don't you (sighs) i confess I don't like paintings of naval warfare. It's a quirk of my personality, but whenever I see one in a museum, it looks the same as every other painting of a boat. <laughs> yeah, I, that's uh, what, we, what we say about him on various LinkedIn profiles. Yeah. Kind, thoughtful, hates paintings of naval warfare. <laughs> yeah, true, true. <laughs> I can't deny. <laughs> well, you perhaps might be more interested to hear that the East Coast has also naturally encouraged smuggling. Ah, excellent. Now, I like smuggling. And of course, you know, my peoples down in the Southwest, great at smuggling. We in Sussex, great at smuggling. So uh, how good were the people of Suffolk at smuggling? Very good. Uh, (laughs) Smuggling gangs from the 17th to 19th centuries operated on a huge scale in Suffolk, bringing in goods from Holland and northern France and peddling them all over the place. Well done, the people of Suffolk. Bravo. (laughs) Well, it's flat land and deep estuaries have historically made it an ideal evasion target, as well as being very handy for smugglers to transport their illegal wares. So a number of defensive structures have been erected all the way along the coast. In the First World War, what's now a beautiful nature reserve at Orford Ness was requisitioned by the War Department and used as a top secret military test site. Yeah, I know a bit about this, in part because we do like to go to Orford from time to time, and that's where we will be performing the Knucker of Nodshall yes, in just a couple of we'll weeks' time We'll be there very now. soon, yeah, and we'll so, give you some details about that a bit later yeah, that, on. That's very exciting. But going to the Ness in Orford, you can see the remnants of this top-secret military site, and there's all kinds of dark and mysterious rumours about what they were doing yeah. out there on the Ness. Well, in the 50s, it was a site for atomic bomb testing. Right. So there's those sort of abandoned nuclear pagodas. Yeah, and amazing. they look quite haunting. Oh, they I definitely think, do. Yeah. Which is interesting because supposedly the area receives lots of parapsychological activity. Well, so lots of strange noises, paranormal appearances. Yes, and of course there's um the Rendlesham Forest, which is really close by as well, if you're talking about sort of paranormal and parapsychological stuff. Yes, Rendlesham Forest. Uh, does that strictly qualify as folklore? Ugh. I don't know, but we, we've got to mention the Rendlesham. <laughs> yeah forest incident so this was a series of supposed alien sightings Mm -hmm. in the 1980s now it's fair to say there's not a huge amount of evidence (laughs) but the occurrences took place around two military bases RAF Woodbridge and RAF Bentwaters there is not loads of evidence available and the sightings mainly seem to have consisted of unexplained lights. Yeah, lots of lights. But the deputy base commander has since come out and said he believes he did witness extraterrestrial 
activity, yep. which was then subject to a military cover-up. Oh. So if you like UFO sightings and theories, this is a great rabbit hole to fall down. It is for sure. <laughs> and if you're interested in learning more and hearing from that very military official, this recent series of Uncanny actually did an episode just about the Rendlesham Forest oh, that's UFO so interesting. Incident, so. I have not listened to that yet. <laughs> well, it's uh, on the subject of nuclear, which we just mentioned. Yeah. Suffolk's also the location of Sizewell B, England's only pressurised water reactor. Any folklore monsters, strange no. mutants? No? I would love to hear some alien stories about Sizewell B. If you know any, <laughs> please write to us. We, we're very interested. <laughs> now, I feel talking about nuclear and the First World War is a little bit on the modern side oh, for us. Far so too modern. I'm, yeah, I'm yeah. going to go back to something nice and folksy now. Um, so obviously we see the huge, uh, very modern structure that is Sizewell, but exploring the rest of Suffolk, you can see loads of buildings painted in the distinctive Suffolk pink colour, yes. which is not just to look pretty. Oh, it okay. has its roots in folk protection practices, Ooh. and it was originally achieved by adding lime wash to oxblood, oh. sloeberries, oh. elderberries and blackthorn, so it would include the protective influences of local plants no way. in the paint on the house. Isn't that what? great? That is so interesting. So you basically lime wash your house with a series of like magical protection items and it helps keep you safe. When you think about it, it makes perfect sense. Of course it does. Right. I'm going to start mixing up some new lime wash for our house <laughs> right now. <laughs> Apologies, <laughs> residents of our Sussex village. <laughs> but our house ends up looking absolutely monstrous. Oh, it will. It will. <laughs> <laughs> now, Martin, you're familiar with the poet George Crabbe, aren't you? I am big fan of George Crabbe. If you don't know who he is, then he was a priest and a poet. Uh, he was a kind of proto-romantic. So what he was doing came along before and inspired the likes of Samuel Taylor Coleridge and William Wordsworth. He's probably most famous for his quite long but very good poem, Peter Grimes. Yes, that's right, which was later turned into an opera composed by Benjamin Britten, and that's set in Aldborough on yeah. the Suffolk coast. Britain actually lived in Suffolk for most of his life too and he's famous for his extensive musical career and for launching the Aldborough Festival which is still running today. Well, speaking of which, you will also be at the Aldborough Festival, won't you, in August performing? Oh, actually, yes. <laughs> so Aaron has got a puppet show that's that's taking place in the Aldborough Festival this year. Gotta love the Red House, Britain, Britain's house, yes. where you've also performed several times. Yes, it's a really interesting place to visit with lots of history about Britain's life. So well worth uh, a swing by if you're in the area. If you can find the Red House, yeah, Chatnavs notoriously don't like to find the Red House. <laughs> now, I could talk about the real history of Suffolk all day, yeah. but I think it's time for us to steal a small boat and sail silently up the estuary by moonlight into a sea of stories. Are we also going to murder our little boy who's assisting us as we go? My metaphor was drawn from smuggling uh, rather oh. than murder, but, uh, but was, you do you. I was talking about Peter Grimes. <laughs> Yes, for clarity, he was talking about Peter Grimes. He's not actually going to murder anybody, I hope. Now, we have any number of wonderful folktales bursting from the Suffolk waters. There's the green children of Woolpit, two children with totally green skin who arrived mysteriously in the village of Woolpit, claiming to come from a place named St Martin's Land. Ooh. Black Shuck, the demon dog of Norfolk, has left his big paw prints in Suffolk Mud too. Yes. And there are local versions of the well-known Rumpelstiltskin and Pied Piper stories in Tom Tip Tot and the Rat Piper of Beckles. Well, now you've written a play about the green children of Woolpit and about Black Shuck. And we went to Blytheborough Church... <laughs> and yes. looked at the claw marks in the church door where this hellhound Black Shuck uh, allegedly ran in and, uh, and kind of attacked a priest, didn't he? He did, but he also got up to those things in Norfolk, which we'll talk about more in our Norfolk episode. Yeah, we will, for sure. Um, but all over East Anglia, Black Shuck oh, sightings. Oh, yes. I mean, he was a, a well-exercised dog. And I hope remains a well-exercised dog. Continues <laughs> to scamper around, uh, bringing um, vengeance and warnings. Demonic walkies all yes. over England. <laughs> <laughs> now, I mentioned earlier that I was born in Bury St Edmunds, yeah. which is, funnily enough, named after St Oh, well, that would make sense. Yeah, okay. It does, but there is a lovely story about the martyrdom of St Edmund, who was sadly used as target practice by Danish invaders and then beheaded. Oh, no. Ed Edmund's body was found by his followers. But <laughs> who I imagine were 
quite upset at finding him just full of arrows and without a head on. Well, yes, that's right, because his head was missing. Oh, no! And they couldn't find it anywhere. <laughs> but later, they heard a wolf howling to them. And when they followed the sound of the wolf's howling, they found a beautiful wolf guarding Edmund's head. Oh, that's lovely. And there's a gorgeous sculpture of a wolf on the very St Edmund's roundabout to this very day. Oh, do you think that's got something to do with your affiliation towards all wolves? Because you love I wonder. They are. They're my favourite animal. I love wolves. But maybe that's why, because I was actually born in Wolf County. Yeah, that would make sense. (laughs) Now, we often talk about hill figures on Three Ravens, mm-hmm. and there is a great one in Bures in Suffolk of a huge dragon. What? I've not seen this. Wait, what? Well, you probably haven't seen this because it's actually a modern hill figure. It was oh, created in 2012. Right. But it references a much older legend of a green dragon who could not be killed with arrows. They just bounced off its scaly hide. Okay, makes sense. Well done, dragon. <laughs> well, the dragon may not have been a dragon. Oh. It may have actually been a crocodile. which was supposedly given as a gift to Richard I by Salah Hadin and housed in the Tower of London. And it then escaped. No way. Uh, (laughs) If that's the case, it was obviously a crocodile which enjoyed a hike all the way to Suffolk, which is coincidentally one of my personal nightmares. (laughs) Yeah, you don't like crocodiles. Uh, Yeah, a a fast-moving crocodile that escapes from somewhere it should be kept. (laughs) Wolves you love, crocodiles not a fan. There's a world of difference. (laughs) There are also, you know, a few other dragon legends from across Suffolk and Norfolk over time, and those are part of what we've drawn on for the Nucker Show. Yes, Exactly. Another tale I've been fascinated by for many years is the story of Saint Botolph and his defeat of the demons terrorising the marshlands of Iken. Mm-hmm. And Martin, you've actually played Saint Botolph, haven't you? I have, yeah. It turns out Botolph, very handsome. Very handsome. <laughs> very quite, tall. Quite tall. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and also a bit of a hero because travellers across the marshes around Iken were troubled by demons until Botolph built a huge stone cross and drove them out. Yeah. There's a beautiful, lonely church at Iken today where you can see a fragment of a Celtic cross, which is said to be the one Botolph built. You actually went out during your research to have a look at that church, didn't yes, you? Yes, we did. Um, we, we found the the tiny little church hidden in the marches. marshes. Well, the easiest way to get there, as I understand it, is actually by river. Yes, it is. That's right. You can you can take a little boat up from Snape. I think there's one. Yeah. Um, we we drove uh, down many very twisty, turny narrow lanes and found it eventually but I think it's it's easier by a boat. Sure. So Martin was talking earlier about how one of the most intriguing things about Suffolk is how the coastline has changed over the centuries due to erosion and fierce storms. Yeah. Probably the most famous example is the lost city of Dunwich which was once an important seaport but now it's a tiny decayed village which has been increasingly lost to the waves but legend has it that the church bells of the lost medieval city can still be heard ringing below the waves to warn of a coming storm. Love it. Isn't that great? It's so good. I really want to go there. I've still not been to Dunwich Heath, so that is one of the things that we've got on the to-do list for this summer, isn't yes, it? Yes, we will definitely visit this summer. <laughs> In Wesselton, which is not far from Dunwich, the graveyard there is home to a witch stone. Ooh. It's a tombstone which has fallen flat and over which grass will not grow. Awesome. That's so cool. But apparently the devil himself can also be summoned from this stone by leaving a handkerchief on it and running seven times round the church. (laughs) Why a handkerchief? That's Uh, so so odd. So the devil can blow his nose? Yeah, exactly. He's he's got some sinus conundrums. (laughs) Another thing we can test this summer if you like. Oh, devil. Poor poor chap's got the sniffles. (laughs) There are also fairies in Suffolk, of course. Yeah, And they're particularly active in Stowmarket, with frequent sightings of bright sparks of light after the fairies have been disturbed. Interestingly, fairies in Suffolk are also called Pharisees, as they are here in Sussex, and also fairies and fairishers. Oh, great. I love all these different names for fairies. I've been writing a special episode that will be going out on the History of England's feed about Yorkshire. It'll be part of season two of Three Ravens, so you can either catch it early through uh, the History of England feed uh, next week, or uh, it'll be released normally in our second series. But again, in Yorkshire... 
different names for fairies. Oh, really? And, and in Yorkshire, um, fairies and gnomes are actually interchangeable. Oh, that's interesting. It is interesting. Because that's not the case elsewhere, no, is it? No, that's I mean, right. A gnome's quite different down here. But they also do live in fairy mounds. So, you know, the gnome mound and the fairy mound are connected. I don't know, it's, it's intriguing. Is that an explanation for sort of... Barrows, barrows basically. Barrows, yeah. 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 Oh, but also brilliant. fairies in Yorkshire are not necessarily meant to be small. So they're like human size. Ah. Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> That's a bit alarming. Yep. I think if they're small, you can deal with them. <laughs> no, I know. And in Somerset, they're not meant to be small A six either. foot five fairy with big old feet to match. Yeah. Now, I'd be cautious. But as discussed back in like episode two or three, in Cornwall's got the most fairies. Well, certainly the different species yeah. of fairies. But we, we really like finding out about different types of fairies and local names for them. So if you know any that haven't popped up yet, do get in touch and yes, tell please. us. We like that. Now, there are some great superstitions in Suffolk, including one that if you get your apron completely wet while washing your linen, you'll be sure to have a drunken husband. <laughs> what? Yep. So you have to leave a little dry bit and then your husband won't be drunk. I feel like this is just a justification for husbands because they can... They can say, oh, well, <laughs> Margaret got her apron wet, so yeah, exactly. down the pub we go. <laughs> <laughs> <Love it. laughs> There's another as well that you must avoid geese flying overhead because they're said to be the hounds of the angel Gabriel hunting the devil. What? So if you see a flock of geese flying overhead, just, just give it a wide berth. <laughs> Don't get in the angel Gabriel's way. He's busy. Oh, no. <laughs> OK, well, I, I've not been adhering to that very important rule and guidance so i really need to change my behaviors if i see geese i'm like oh geese walk away (laughs) now it's been a couple of weeks since i've talked about folk medicine so i've got a lovely one for our final episode of the series hit me if you catch the ague in suffolk don't worry just go to a style and drive a nail into the part which is touched by people crossing it on foot Presumably to pass your ague on to them. Oh, really? Yeah. That's um, very kind of you. Not very nice, but at least you don't have the ague anymore, so lucky you. True enough. The people of Suffolk are also untroubled by that killer of men, the whooping cough, (laughs) because they used to take a live frog and hang it up a chimney. And by the time the frog was dead, the whooping cough would be cured. That seems like one of those... It will have just run its course or you'll be dead kind of cures, Mm. if you see what I mean. But I've been struck by how many of these involve frogs and toads. Yeah, and also, well, I guess that makes sense with the croak and the hoop of the cough. Mm. You know, the sound may have some interrelation between them. Yeah, some connection. But also, certainly since I was a child, I've seen far fewer frogs and toads in the garden than I used to. Yeah. Which makes me think people are still doing this. (laughs) I think there's a reason for the running down of the frog population. Well, I've never met anyone with whooping cough. It's a conspiracy. Solved it. (laughs) Now, it's time to retell a tale very dear to my heart, and I'll start spinning my yarn right after this. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. When the sea's dreaming before a storm and the sound of it rolling over the shingle rises and falls like the gentle beating of a heart and the cormorants skim under the surface of the water and burst free, shaking shining drops from their oil-dark feathers and it's so bright and clear out there 
You can almost hear the waves whispering their secrets to the sky. Then, I remember that strange time. Our stories here are fashioned by the sea, just as our coast is beaten and battered into new shapes, its juts and hollows the bony elbows on the arms of England. This is a tale from the deepest depths of the sea, written between the lines of its strange, wild song. Monks and men tried to capture it, the scratch and stab of their goose-feather pens determining history. But they weren't there, that stormy spring when the marvellous catch was made. I was. I saw it all. I was young then, young and new with the shine still on me, but I remember it, clear as the bells ringing under the sea to warm of a storm. I saw it all. This is how it started, with a sea salt taste on the tip of the tongue and a boat bumping and bouncing down the beach. The day full of possibility, with dreams of nets groaning full of snappers and sturgeon and sticklebacks and salmon. Wasn't my story then. Then it belonged to a clout-headed pair of fishermen, Rafe and Who. Every single day, Rafe and Who sat in their boat and waited for Bounty to swim into their nets. Every single day. But that day, something was different. A dark shadow wriggled and rippled under the boat, bigger than an eel, bigger than an elephant fish. Rafe and Who saw what looked like a tail, but then they saw arms, hands and fingers. It's a man down there, cried Rafe. We best save him or he'll be fair to drown. Sweating and straining, they heaved and hauled, hand over hand, muscles moaning and backs berating. The net protested and clung to the water, but at last it came free and over the bows, thumping and slithering into the boat. Rafe and Who pulled at the net, trying to see if the drowning man lived, but they saw no man inside. No man, but a huge, glossy mass, flopping and quivering and taking a great, gulping breath. Well, that's no man, said Who. It's a monster! It was market day in Orford Town when they brought their monster up to show us. A stiff sea breeze urged the sharp smell of fresh catch into my nostrils as gossip and news flew about like seagulls. Money slipped from purses quick as salmon from nervous hands as the rows of stalls heaved and seethed like the sea herself. Fish was our life and our living. The sea was always our friend, but we worked it hard back then. There was nothing so sweet to see as a full net full of wriggling, slithering beauties. Silver and bronze and green, better than any hoard of treasure. And there was no fishing without me, for I made the nets. Twisted hemp and pine tar as I net and loop and back and forth. From my corner of the market, I could see everything when they brought him up. There was a huge crowd around the net, gawping and poking at something huddled in one of my nets. I heard mutters of monster and demon, fish or fowl, but when I pushed through to look for myself, I saw none of those things. Oh, he was scaly and glistening slick as a snipe eel and tailed like a fish. But when I looked into the great dark pools of his eyes, I knew he was a man. Some said we ought to put him back in the sea where he came from, and I was with him, but Rafe and Who were for taking him up to the castle to show him to Lord Bartholomew. They were prinking and proud of themselves, you see, wanting to show off what they hauled up. So they lifted the net on their shoulders and up we all went after them to see what our betters made of it. In those days, Bartholomew de Granville was Orford's protector. High in his smart new castle, he looked down on us all with his knife-grey stare and his two clean hands. 
He was a, a devil digger, a churchgoer, mean and cold. Being such close friends with God, he didn't need to be friends with anyone else. When we brought the wild man into the castle, the Lord Bartholomew's sharp gaze sliced into all of us before it came to rest on the man in the net. The jeweled clasp of his prayer book clicked shut as he stood and commanded Rafe and Hu to untangle the net. Twisted fibres of the net came loose from the wild man's body and for the first time I saw him, I really saw him. Not a fish, no, something other, something all its own. I saw a green skin, glittering scales all barnacled over like the treasure of a long-forgotten wreck. His hair was coarse, strong tendrils waving weed-like round the rock pools and shallows of his face, and that long, sinuous tail flicking up and over. The sound it made, beating against the floor, a pumping heart, a quivering tattoo of fear. We asked the Lord Bartholomew if he was a man or a fish, but the Lord said he was a devil. I said no, because the wild man was frightened, but Lord Bartholomew said it was a trick. Devils play tricks, he said in his cold, distant voice. Lies are the only language their tongues know. This creature's unnatural tail and hideous skin proclaim it for what it is, a flawed and jagged fragment of God's image. He threw us all out then, and I only found out what happened when I sneaked back to the castle after dark and spoke to my friend Jack, who washed the pots there. Jack said that Lord Bartholomew and his guards had taken the wild man down to the dungeons below the castle. They'd questioned him for hours, Jack told me, asking him if he was spying for the French, if he was a fish pretending to be a man, if he was an evil spirit possessing the body of a drowned sailor, and all manner of nonsense. When he couldn't answer or understand them, they thought he must be a fish. But Lord Bartholomew reached out and pinched the wild man till he called out in pain. And then he said the fish couldn't feel pain, so the creature from the deep must be a man. Jack said it had gone on all day after that, with the Lord Bartholomew insisting that a man must acknowledge and recognise Christ our Saviour. Of course, the wild man hadn't responded, so the Lord had called to his guards to strike his limbs and sprinkle hot oil. They carried on and on, pain from every point of the compass, changing from burning to pinching to hitting to tearing. The wild man made sounds at last, hollow, cavernous notes of pain. But he spoke no words, and he didn't understand the cross, the bread and the wine, the holy book. Long after night had fallen, they left him. But he wasn't what he was anymore. They tried to make him different, like them. Their blades had ripped and his scales had fallen like snowflakes on the stone floor. They hadn't killed him, but they'd taken his life from him just the same, breaking where they thought they mended. The last thing Lord Bartholomew did, Jack told me, was to bring the cross towards the wild man. And when he hung his head, Bartholomew believed that he had won. Why does he hate him so much? Jack asked me. I didn't know then, but I know now. Lord Bartholomew hated the wild man because he didn't understand him, and he couldn't control him, and he hid his fear in a cloak sewn for prayer and authority. It was late then, and most in the castle were in their beds, so we sneaked down into the underbelly of the castle where the dungeons were. There were no guards on duty and it was a lonely, desperate place, thick with the smell of pain, a foul fog you could almost taste in the air. The wild man was huddled in a corner, his webbed fingers scrabbling for purchase on the walls, blood thickened on the floor and the cracks between the stones. His tail was a ruin. 
Jack had a bucket of fish he'd bought and we offered it to the wild man. He was suspicious at first, but hunger soon won. To this day, I've never seen anyone eat like that. He took hold of the fish and brought it to his mouth, squeezing it hard. Blood and juices poured down his chin and he drank it like it was the best thing he'd ever tasted. Then he guzzled down the rest, cracking and crunching the bones until there was nothing left. He let us help him then, unfolding himself and showing his tail to us. I had my tools with me and it was easier than weaving a net after all. With each stitch, I drew the ripped flesh together and brought him back to himself. And as I stitched, we talked to him, Jack and I, telling him he's whole, that he was before and he will be after, that Lord Bartholomew can't make him something he isn't. We were about to leave Jack and I, but the wild man caught hold of my arm. He held out his hand to me and his green palm uncurled. Nestled in its hollow, we saw a marvellous shell, iridescent and dazzling. It seemed to draw all the light to it and drag it into itself so it was the only bright thing. I took it in my hand and Jack put his hand on it too and we suddenly heard a swirling rush of water as though we were plummeting into the deepest depths of the sea. I took it in my hand and Jack put his hand on it too and we suddenly heard a swirling rush of water as though we were plummeting into the deepest depths of the sea. The water grew blue and still till it was like being inside a jewel. We could hear music, but it sounded as if it were coming from a long way away through water. The light from the shell expanded and stretched until it was everywhere. It played across the flickering, twinkling skin of the fish. Yes, fish! They were with us, or so it seemed, nudging at our hands and feet, playing in our hair and tickling our noses with bubbles. The murmur and swell of the ocean seemed louder and louder, drowning out voices and gossip and rules until the sea was everything. Well, after that, Jack and I were determined to get the wild man back to his home, though we didn't know how we would do it, and we didn't get a chance until much later. The summer had come right in, and we were ready in ourselves in Orford to celebrate the feast of the Star of the Sea. We'd scrub behind our ears, soak the scent of sea and scallop from our hands, and we were ready for a party. Lord Bartholomew was pious and everything, but he couldn't resist the chance to show off. So he ordered that the wild man be brought out of the castle dungeons and down to the harbour so people could look at him. But he didn't want him just swimming away, so he called for some nets to stretch across the harbour mouth to make a pen for him so he couldn't get away. My nets were the ones which were brought. Everyone hastened and hurried down to the harbour, hustling for a good place. They all wanted to see the wild man in the water. He was carried down in a net, and he looked different to the way he had when he'd been caught. He was thinner and paler, somehow as though being away from the sea for so long had leached the colour out of him. Lord Bartholomew gave a speech about the star of the sea being our guide on the way to Christ, lest we capsize amid the storm-tossed waves, and then he commanded that the wild man should be released to swim in the water, just for one day. The guards shook him out of the net, dropping him into the harbour like a coin in a well. He stretched and flexed, feeling the seawater on his skin. Then he was sinking into it, rolling over and over in it, wrapping himself in its arms. But then he was swimming, pulling himself through the waves with arms that suddenly looked stronger towards the line of nets, faster and faster. Mine were the best nets in Orford, you know. No fish could escape them, for they were woven to do the job. Or they would have been, if I hadn't cut a hole right there in the middle. And like an eel, 
The wild man was through, he was out, he was free. The Lord Bartholomew was furious. His arms were raving and his face was red as he knew he'd lost his prize. We all watched the wild man swimming away, sometimes visible, sometimes covered by waves, sometimes holding up a hand, then disappearing below the surface. We watched and we watched as he got further away till he was quite gone. And that might have been the last time I saw him, but it wasn't. It was down on the shore at the end of a long day when the year was dying, watching the sun plunge into the sea to cool its toes after a day running across the sky. I looked out over the water. The sun was in my eyes and there was a rock jetting up ahead of me. But it wasn't a rock. It was moving and it was swimming towards me, scales shining in the last surviving sunlight. It was the wild man. He looked happy. He was free. He recognised no cross, no rules, no men with chains and burning irons. He was smiling because he knew they'd never catch him again. Right up to me he swam, close enough to touch, and there in his hand was the magic shell he showed Jack and me in the castle. I wondered at him giving it me then, but of course he didn't need it, for the sound of the waves would never rest for him. The wild man swam out, and I watched the waves carry him, past the boundaries, past the reefs, to a place where the pointing finger of judgement would not rest on him. The tide rushed in over my feet, and such a fullness, such a brightness came over me, kept me standing there till night, and familiar voices called me back to town. Days and weeks passed by, with the same rules and the same narrow streets. But all of this time later, when I hold my shell and hear the booming surf slamming against the clouds for joy, I still know I'll never drown. So, Martin, how do you feel about the legend of the Wild Man of Orford? I mean, obviously, it's a lovely story, really well written and lovely reading. I really enjoyed hearing the Suffolk accent. Oh, well, I don't think it would stand up to much scrutiny, but (laughs) it uh, it felt appropriate for the character. But the story itself is so sad and and melancholy. And one of those interesting ones, because, you know, when you're looking at folklore... Sometimes evidence for tales are a bit thin on the ground. Whereas one of the things that's quite interesting about the Wild Man of Orford is there's quite a lot of detail, really. Well, there's certainly an account in um, the Chronicle of Rafe of Coggeshall, so uh, a a historian, a monk um, who wrote a history, about the Wild Man's appearance, which is remarkably blunt in tone. Doesn't (laughs) remotely speculate about whether or not it really happened. He just reports it the same as any other event. Yeah. Very prosaic. But that's the thing. The accounts of what happened are presented as fact. And I I think that that's very interesting. Um, There isn't a sense in which a yarn is being spun by the people who told the Wild Man of Orford story. This is a thing that happened in the 12th century in Orford. There was a man from the depths brought up. Done. Sorry. <laughs> Job done. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, many of them are the same. Um, yes. The Green Children of Woolpit is, is similar. It's recorded as just, there were two children found in the wolf pits of Woolpit. They were green. Yes. And some of them <laughs> don't have any detail at all. The Wild Man, I think, you know, we have illustrations and wood carvings that date back a very long way of the Wild Man of Orford. Yes, we do. And pictures of, of wood woes. Yes, um, of course. There's actually a Woodway's figure on the font in Orford Church. Which is gorgeous. But he is more of a wild man of the woods type, hairy and holding a big club. I gave my wild man a tail, but not every depiction of him has a tail. It's it's unclear as to whether he's a merman or a more generic legged wild man. See, I always thought that it was a merman. 
Um, it's it could be. It's ah. it's not clear. Certainly, the Butley and Orford Oysteridge restaurant have the wild man as a a lovely tailed merman serving seafood yeah. as their logo, <laughs> which do. is pretty yeah. great. We'll do a little selfie once we're up there. <laughs> <laughs> I gave my wild man a tail so that Bartholomew de Granville could try and get rid of it too, yeah. along with all the rest of his wildness and lack of conformity. Yeah. And I actually, I think it's quite a universal story about a small community's suspicious reaction to otherness and difference. Yes. And they go through the usual thought process of, oh, he's probably French. Oh, maybe the devil. <laughs> fish. Maybe a fish. Uh, and then they attempt to get him to conform to the social and religious norms of the day. Well, some of the earliest recorded cases of English people encountering the Irish they suggest that they are green and covered in seaweed and, yes. in, and in the sea. Possibly and devils, possibly fish yeah. people. So sort of anything that's foreign or alien to me is is represented as kind of wild yeah, um, and, exactly. and dangerous in some respects and ought to be brought into the Christian tradition. Because, you know, I mean, the Coggeshall writings are informed by Christianity, aren't they? They absolutely are, yeah. yes. So a lot of it is about, you know, the Christianity spread as a civilising influence and uh, the wild man being this kind of pagan or mm. Celtic other, this sort of savage thing from before the point where things got, I guess, what you might call civilised, but, yeah. you know, what does civilization look like? And mm. definitely doesn't fit in with the agenda of de Granville, who was a real historical figure. He yes. was the Castellan of Orford in the 12th century. Yeah, and the castle there is great, isn't oh, it? Orford Castle, yeah. Yes, amazing example of Ashlar stonework, if you're into castle building. Yeah, and recently restored, actually. They did a lot of work on yeah. it, spent, spent a lot of money. Well done, English Heritage. And you can still go down into the dungeons where the wild man was supposedly kept after he'd been captured. Oh, that's so creepy. Quite an atmosphere and creepy place. Yeah. <laughs> now we've uh, we've dropped sizable hints throughout this episode, but this is a good segue to say that in just two weeks we will actually be in Orford. Yep. We're very excited because we're going to be working with Orford Primary School and a wonderful local charity called the Thomas Marshall Education Fund to create a performance project. Yes. So children at the school have already been working on creating their own puppets, which will be used in the show. And over the course of the week, we're up there with them. We'll be rehearsing songs, dances, pie fights, puppetry and scenes with them. And then they will perform with us in our brand new show, The Knucker of Nodzal. Yes, so this is an Arts Council project that we're involved in that's taking place at Orford Town Hall. If you follow Rust and Stardust, Eleanor's company on Facebook and other social media, then there's a lot more detail there. Yes, um, Martin and I will be up there. We'll be joined by Katie Summers of Rust and Stardust, who's built some incredible puppets for the show, including the knucker itself, and Ben Harbour, whose dulcet tones you hear on our theme song. So if you're in the Orford area, there are still some tickets available and you can find all the information on the Rust and Stardust website at www.rustandstardustproductions.co.uk and we'll put the link up on our Three Ravens site too. We sure will. And I guess we're saying goodbye for a few weeks because we won't be back until July in Series 2. Oh, Martin, shall we give a little sneak preview of what's coming in Series 2? Well, in The Gap, we're going to be doing a few little things, so some compilations of just the stories with none of the kind of history and folklore bits that we do around them, so they'll be coming out in the in-between, as well as some listener episodes of folk tales that you've sent to us that you'd like us to retell. In terms of next series, I mean, obviously there's going to be another 13 episodes, so quite a bit, but, you know, highlight will include from me um, Long Meg and her daughters will be the first episode back as a Cumberland story I've got The Hairy Hands of Dartmoor from Devon um, and I've got the story of The Fish and the Ring from Northumberland what, what have you got coming up? Uh, well I'm off to Cheshire Surrey Huntingdonshire and Worcestershire among okay. others and I will be talking about The Legend of the Swan Ooh. The Witch of the Westmoreland nice. and my personal heroine Blanche Harriet. Okay, I know nothing about Blanche Harriet. Well, there's an awful lot to look forward to. I can't wait. Me neither. If you'd like bonus content in the meanwhile, including exclusive stories, our monthly newsletter and our archive of episodes completely ad-free 
then please consider joining our Conspiracy of Ravens on Patreon for just $3 a month. And that's at patreon.com forward slash three Ravens podcast. As mentioned earlier, we'll also be choosing our three favourite entries to our card design contest over the next few days and look forward to sharing them all with you on social media. So please do follow us, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, etc, etc. <laughs> As ever, we love hearing from you. So please stay in touch via three Ravens podcast at gmail.com. Until next time, then, while our story's gone that way, we'll go this way. And remember, don't whistle until you're out of the woods. Thanks and credit go to Kirsty Hartziosis Suffolk Folk Tales, the Visit Suffolk website, and Rafe of Coggeshall's Chronicon Anglicanum. Our theme song is the traditional folk ballad Three Ravens, performed by Ben Harbour and Eleanor Conlon. Our logo and graphic design work is by Ollie James Dare, and the Three Ravens podcast is a Rust and Stardust production, produced by me, Martin Vaux. Thanks for listening. God sent every gentleman, such hounds, such hawks, and such lean man, with a down, dairy, 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 down, down. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.